Today, we are officially entering into the Advent season. We are now in it. Do you know what the word Advent even means? Let me tell you. It just, it simply, it, it means arrival. Advent means arrival or, or coming. But really, arrival is a little closer to what it actually means. Uh, Advent simply means arrival. And when we're, of course, when we're in the Christmas season or the Advent season, we know whose arrival we're talking about. And his name is? Right on. We are in the Advent season, and Christmas will soon be here. I don't know about you, but I felt like I blinked my eye and November was gone. You ever had a month like that? I just had a month like that, honestly. I, I can't believe it's gone. So here we are in the Advent season, the arrival or the coming of the Christ child. The birth of Jesus, of course, is the, is the start of God's plan to save the world from sin. It's such a, an awesome thing. One of the great verses of the Bible, you know, John 3, 16 it really even applies to the Advent season, you know, for, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. And this is the time of year that we, we pause to remember that. Whether or not he was born on December the 25th is completely irrelevant. Don't ever get caught up with that. It's nonsense. It doesn't matter. This is the day of the year that we celebrate his coming. So this is what's important. And God is honored when, we, when we, we take the time to revere the greatest gift that ever arrived on planet Earth. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. So today, before we have communion, I wanted us to look at uh, a psalm, Psalm 22. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 22. And you're going to be either thrilled or horrified to know that I'm going to get all the way through Psalm 22 today. See, you're either going to be thrilled or horrified. I'm not sure which, but we're going, to, we're going to make our way through this psalm. This is one of the greatest psalms ever. In fact, it's really a trilogy, uh, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24 are all really about the shepherd. Um, that in, in Psalm 22, the shepherd suffers in Psalm 23, the shepherd cares. In uh, Psalm 24, the, uh, the shepherd comes back, the shepherd arrives. And, and there's really this little trilogy of these three uh, psalms that really go together. And I wanted to look at Psalm 22. It's an amazing part of Scripture. It's a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Uh, it's, it's like other messianic prophecies that you see in the Old Testament there always are multiple applications uh, to most of them. This one, uh, this one is not unlike that, where it, it really has two applications. David is writing this psalm, and so there's an immediate application to David's life and what he's going through and the things uh, that he's struggling with. But the greater fulfillment of this psalm is, is clearly found in Jesus, and no one, no one would really argue that. David wrote it while he was going through a time of suffering in his life. Some think that maybe it was while he was running from Saul. But the words and the meaning of this psalm 
point far beyond what David himself personally experienced. He talked about things that actually never happened to him. And, and uh, the, the cool part, like, this is, how, this is why the Bible is so powerful and so unique. David is writing about a thousand years before Jesus arrives on the scene, right? David has never seen the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire doesn't even exist. The, the crucifixion and that kind of, uh, uh, of uh, torture and th that kind of death penalty, it wasn't even in existence yet. David knew nothing about these things as he wrote, but yet he writes with such clarity and, and such vision. It's almost like he's standing at the foot of the cross watching it happen and describing it. This is how neat and powerful Psalm 22 really is. And so I just want you to get a sense of that. Today, I wanted to talk about Christmas and the cross. Steph, clue in, title for website, right there. Christmas and the cross. Where'd she go? Oh, gee, I lost you for a second. Okay, Christmas and the cross. Christmas and the cross. Christmas is the start of God's plan, and the cross is the finishing work of the plan to save the world. So before we have communion today, I wanted to look at this psalm. Um, let me just say this before we start to read it. Uh, the psalm is really in two distinct parts when you begin to, to study it. Verse 1 to about 21, it's all about suffering, uh, being abandoned, being despised, being condemned. And then the second part, it turns uh, in verse 22, and it begins, it begins to talk about victory. It begins, it begins to utter words of praise, deliverance. It, it begins to speak words about the ultimate rule of God. And so... Uh, it, it's, it's clearly distinct, almost cut into two in that sense. So rather than read it all, at, at a, because it's a, a long thing, what I want to do is just take it in chunks and, uh, and work our way through it. So uh, first, the first five verses, Psalm 22, verses 1 to 5, will be on the screen. It says this, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you. My God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. So this first, the, the first five verses are talk about being forsaken. And this, of course, starts with the moment of Jesus' death, okay? So today I really want to focus on how the psalm points to Jesus rather than to David. And, and, and so here you have Jesus hanging on the cross. One of the, seven, one of the seven famous sayings that Jesus says when he hangs on the cross is, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me? Why can't I feel your presence? And see, Jesus cries out to God in agony, not only from the physical pain. I believe that the pain of being separated from the Father was probably almost worse. He'd never felt that before. He'd never experienced that kind of separation. Matthew 27, verse 45. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. And at about 3 o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, 
my God, why have you abandoned me? He's feeling it strongly. The darkness settles over the land for three hours. It's a darkness that you can feel. You know what I mean? And, and he, he, he's forsaken. And here's the beautiful thing, though. You know, when we read the New Testament and we see words like, you know, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You, you understand how this relates to Jesus? It's because this. Let me, let me fill you in. Jesus was forsaken for a moment so that you and I would never be forsaken again. He took that upon himself, right? He's forsaken for a moment, but in that moment, he's feeling the agony of it. Now, the Holy Spirit is with us. He's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us, but that's because Jesus took that upon himself. He became that sin, 2 Corinthians 5. I got a bunch of scripture that I want to get through today. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So he became that sin offering for for us on our behalf. So God, and, and just think about this. You know what I was thinking about? It was actually Martin Luther who was studying this passage and I was reading and he said this phrase. He said, God forsaking God. Who can understand it? And I started to think about it, and my mind started to hurt. But that's what happened. Who can truly understand that moment and what was going on? God, forsaking God. But it's something beyond our ability to understand. But what we can understand is this. Jesus did it for you. Jesus did it for me. For God so loved this world that he sent his son. He did it for us. Matthew 26, 37, he took Peter and, and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. And he told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He, he went on a little further and he bowed with his face to the ground, praying, my father, If it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done and not mine. See, the price Jesus paid was not just the physical agony that we talk about, which was absolutely astonishing. But it wasn't just the physical agony. It was this deep spiritual pain, agony, this separation, this darkness that he'd never felt before, that there was a moment when God forsook him. And he'd never experienced that kind of darkness or pain before. Matthew 27 says that darkness fell across the land for three hours. We, We just read it a couple of scriptures ago. Darkness fell across the land for three hours. It seems like Jesus doesn't say anything in those three hours. And at the end of those three hours of darkness, he cries out these words. And I noticed something this week that maybe, I don't know if I've noticed it before, but it popped into my brain and I wanted to share it with you. Something that relates all the way back to the children of Israel when they were leaving Egypt before they celebrated Passover. Uh, put up for me Exodus 10, 21. 
says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Lift your hand toward heaven, and the land of Egypt will be covered with a darkness so thick that you can feel it. So Moses lifted his hand to the sky, and a deep darkness covered the entire land of Egypt for three days. During all that time, the people could not see each other and no one moved, but there was light as usual where the people of Israel lived. Isn't that cool? But here's, here's the thing. There was three days of darkness in Egypt right before those, the, all the Passover lambs were slain. Right before Passover, there was three days of darkness. And there was three hours of darkness before the great Lamb of God died for the sins of the world. And for some reason, that just blessed me. So I wanted to share that with you. Isn't that kind of neat? So let's move on. Uh, Psalm 22, 6 to 10. But I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. Yet you brought me safely from my mother's womb. You led me to trust you at my mother's breast. I was thrust into your arms at my birth, and you have been my God from the moment that I was born. See, this worm thing, it's this symbol of extreme weakness. Not a lot of people have a lot of love for worms. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but worms come across as this symbol of extreme weakness, of extreme helplessness, of of something that, is, something that is disregarded, something that is despised, something that is, that is offensive and gross. And, and, and this, again, can clearly apply to Jesus. Think about what they just said and those that are sneering at him, scorning him, despising him. Look at Mark 15, 29. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, then save yourself and come down from the cross. And the leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He said he saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. They're virtually parroting Psalm 22. It's right here. Start, start comparing, and it's shocking how close it is. A thousand years before this happened, right? Isaiah, again, 53.3, this is hundreds of years before. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him, and we looked the other way. He was despised, and we didn't care. It screams Jesus. They stood there, and they watched him suffer. They thought he was gross, despised, useless. Just, he, he's, this, he's a worm. He's helpless. He's weakless. He, he, he's, he's completely un, un, like unvaluable, right? They stood there. They watched him suffer. They mocked him and made fun of him and watched him die. Just think about that. Our sensibilities must rise up and say, it's, that's so, I mean, it's incredibly low, right? It's, it's not even low, it's, it's evil. And all these things that are happening are 
clearly demonically inspired. Clearly, the enemy is moving in that, in that area and causing some of these people to react and respond the way that they did. It's, it's unbelievably low. Jesus took it all, and he didn't retaliate. In fact, one of the other famous sayings that you know well, not only did he not retaliate, but he took it all, but he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It's unbelievable. Okay, let it go on. Psalm Uh, We read to 10. So verse 11, 11 to 18. Let's look at that section. Do not stay so far from me for trouble is near and no one else can help me. My enemies surround me like a herd of bulls, full fierce bulls of Bashan have hemmed me in. Like lions, they open their jaws against me, roaring and tearing into their prey. Now check, check out some of these words. My life is poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength has dried up like sunbank clay, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and they throw dice for my clothing. How does he say these words? David is operating prophetically in a powerful way as he writes these things. Wild animals. They're beasts, they're coming at me, they're snarling and nasty. See, the enemies of Jesus are described as these bloodthirsty wild animals, right? That David's description of of crucifixion is incredible here. You, You remember David had never seen this before. David had never heard about this before, right? Crucifixion was a Roman invention. The Romans weren't in power. The Roman Empire wasn't even in existence. And yet David describes it so vividly. Jesus' heart is broken by the rejection of so many people there. So many people. Yes, he knows what he's going to accomplish. He knows the remnant that believes. He knows the work of God that's going to happen. He knows the hope and the eternity that he was giving the world. But in that moment, he looks down and he sees people who are lost, people who are being twisted and led by the enemy, and he's... Feeling that, the rejection, the future that lays ahead of them. He's feeling that. They're like crazy wild animals who are out of control. His heart is broken and he experiences physical thirst beyond human comprehension. His hands and his feet are pierced. Excuse me. He says his bones are all out of joint. And as And that happened nearly to every person that hung on the cross. That every bone gets disjointed out of your body as you hang there. They divide his clothes by throwing dice. All these things happen. Look at Mark 15, 24. The soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and they threw dice to to decide who would get each piece. David even says they threw dice. It's crazy. David says his heart 
is like wax that's melting within me. John 19.34, one of the soldiers, I just wanted to say this because I think it's kind of interesting. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear. This was after he was gone, and immediately blood and water flowed out. Now, I want you to take note. It's, it's, it's notable that John says that the, the spear that is thrust into the, Jesus' side, he, doesn't, he didn't just say blood came out. It, it, he wouldn't even have noted that. You would expect blood to come out. But he, he noticed something. He said blood and water came out. And he noted it enough that he wrote it down. Jesus' heart was ruptured. That's what they say. That when a heart is broken and ruptured like that, it actually causes water to come out of the body. It would have been the cause of what John had seen. Jesus really did have a broken heart. His heart was like wax that was melting within him. It's, it's really, really powerful. Look at verse, uh, uh, go back to 22, 19, uh, uh, verse 19 to 24. O Lord, do not stay far away. You are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. Save me from the sword and spare my precious life from these dogs. Snatch me from the lion's jaws and from the horns of these wild oxen. Now here's where it begins to turn. Right here at verse 22. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. And I will praise you among your assembled people. Praise the Lord, all you who fear him. Honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but he has listened to their cries for help. See, now the psalm begins to turn. It's, it begins to change. All of a sudden, the light is on that the darkness, the pain, the despised, the condemning thing that's going on, all of a sudden it changes. That, that it, he has come to deliver us. He has come to save us. He has come to look after the needy. He has come to listen to the cries for help. He is here. He has won. He has finished. And all of a sudden it turns. And what looks like absolute absolute uh, uh, you know, defeat turns into complete victory. And this is what happens here. This is why he came. He comes to hear that cry for help. He's not turned his back on us, but God so loved the world that he sent his son to go through this so that we would never be forsaken again. So that we would never be abandoned again. So that we would never be despised. So that we would have a way. So that we would have hope. This is what he did. Right? The mission was to live among us, to save us, to deliver us, to show us God's love. This is what he did. 1 John uh, chapter 1, 1 and 2, look at these, these verses. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the father and then he was revealed to us. This is who he is. 
We, and they're saying there to their, John is writing saying, listen, we saw him. We lived with him. We experienced him. We, 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 we saw it with our own eyes. We felt him with our own hands. He is the one. He's the Messiah, the great one who came to live and to die, to suffer, to be despised and abandoned so that we would never have to be. This is a powerful message for us. Christmas and the cross go together. They are connected powerfully. And this is what I want us to see today out of Psalm 22. Jesus finished the work so that we never have to be separated from God again. That we are saved, we are set free, we are set up to enjoy eternal life in the presence of God. That we are adopted into his family. We have become children of the Most High. Because of what he's done. In his presence, there is joy. In his presence, there is peace. In his presence, there is purity. In his presence, there is hope. This gives us more than enough reason to praise him. More than enough reason to say you are worthy. More than enough reason to say, I'll give you all the glory. He is worthy of it and a hundred times more. Victory has been won at the cross. Think about back all the way to the Garden of Eden. And sin enters the world. And God knows what needs to be done. He's not taken by surprise. He knows that this time of a Savior being born was going to come. He knew what needed to be done. He knew the price that had to be paid. He knew all the details that were going to, that, that were going to come forth. And it was prophesied, even beginning back in Genesis 3, that one day he may strike your heel, but you will crush his head. We see that victory the day of the cross. You know, Isaiah 53, it was prophesied so many times, but here's a famous one, 10 and 11. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. We are among those who are counted righteous. Amen? This is the gift of Christmas. This is the gift of the cross. This is why he came. Yes, it's lovely that he came as a baby. Yes, but think of it as the beginning of God's plan to save the world. It's not the end, it's just the beginning. And so we're fast forwarding a little bit today, but it was communion and I just felt so compelled to share this psalm with you, to say, connect Christmas and the cross this year as we walk through the Advent season. Connect those two things because they powerfully are connected. This is why he came. Think of the incredible gift that we received on that Christmas morning. It's Christmas and the cross is yet to come. He, he made it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he has taken upon himself their sin. God's rule 
it ends with this, verse 25 down to the end of the psalm. Pretty good, eh? Didn't think I could get through the whole psalm, did you? Thank you. You can pat me on the back later. Yeah. Oh, there's so much more. I could have split it into like eight weeks, but I just, as we head into the Advent season this year, I just wanted you to, to feel blessed, strengthened, inspired, and encouraged today that he loves us. God so loved the world that he sent his son. And we celebrate that coming during the Advent season. But remember, I know you know this, but just be reminded, he was a baby who was sent with a purpose. He, was a, he, he grew to be a man on a mission. He, he was the son of God who lived and died to relieve us of being forsaken, despised, to, to give us hope and life. And it's a blessing to us in a deep, deep way to have him in our lives. So be thankful for him this Advent season, will you? Verse 25 to the end. I will praise you in the great assembly. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek the Lord will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. Think about one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. You have it right here a thousand years before in Psalm 22, right? All the families of the nations will bow down for royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules all the nations. So let the rich of the earth feast and worship. Bow before him all who are mortal, all whose lives will end as dust. Our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. We're 2,000 years ahead and we're still sitting here today. A future generation hearing and remembering and celebrating the wonders of the Lord, right? Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything he has done. God's rule, the whole earth will acknowledge the Lord, that future generations will hear about his wonders. He will rule the nations. Look at Isaiah 9, verse 6, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Look at this. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. And the passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. It was prophesied again and again and again and again. That what we now know is Christmas Day. What we set that day aside to celebrate the advent, the arrival of the Christ child. It was, it was in people's hearts for thousands of years prior, looking for the day where prophetic words were given to Isaiah, to, to uh, uh, 
to, I, I was going to say, there's so many, I won't even go, but think about all the prophecies through the Old Testament that even David, who maybe a lot of people don't consider to be a prophet, he sure was a prophet. Don't doubt that. And Psalm 22 proves it quite clearly that God was using him in a prophetic way. This is, this is God's rule that one day every knee will bow above the earth, on the earth, and below the earth. Every knee will bow that he is Lord. His government will never end. His peace will come. And whether the enemy likes it or not, he's defeated and Jesus has finished the job. And one day, it's, it's like it's already but not yet. And that's kind of the tension we live in, right? We live in the power and the glory and the peace that the Spirit of God lives in us. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit that we have, you know, the same power that raised Christ from the dead now lives in us. We have that already, but it pales in comparison to that day. One day, we will really see it. One day, we will, we will experience it more than we've ever experienced it before. Remember just before Jesus died, he said three great words. It is finished. Finished is a beautiful word. It's a powerful word. He completed the work. I, I, I could go on about finish, but you get it. He completed the work that needed to be done. Revelation 21, look at this. Here's now at the, the far end of the Bible, at the other end from the Psalms, and, and, and uh, John says this, and the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is, it is finished. That I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. And all who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. I don't know about you today, but that is really good news. Really good news. What Jesus offers us is a finished work. It's a finished work. You know, one of the, one of the things that ministry people will struggle with all the time is that our work never seems to be finished, right? Because you're working with people. I sometimes envy somebody who's like making a cabinet, right? Installing a kitchen, Al. And you walk away and go, finished. Good job. Well, I'm pouring my heart out, and guess what? Tomorrow I start all over again. It's never finished. Never, I, never, I always feel nothing's finished. It's never, it's never over. I can't walk away feeling that I'm finished. But here we have him saying, listen, it's finished. It's completed. He didn't cry out, it's almost finished. He didn't cry out, help me to finish. It was a shout of victory that was rung all the way back through the Psalms, through Isaiah, through the Old Testament, all the way up to Revelation and the end of Revelation chapter 21, that the Alpha Omega will one day say, it is finished. And he said it that day. He offers us a finished work. We, we're, we can never be worthy of it. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. It's offered to us as a free gift at Christmas time. And those who receive this gift know that it's the greatest gift that you've ever received. And so Psalm 22 ends 
showing the glorious work of salvation, that the glorious work of salvation is finished, that the promise has been delivered and the job has been completed. It starts at Christmas time, but he finished it at the cross. Amen?